Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today's episode of the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary is going to be a bit different. As we approach Palm Sunday or Passion Sunday, whichever name your church chooses to use there, Passion apparently being the older, Palm being maybe more recent, but still old enough that most people think of it as Palm Sunday. And the church is seeing a more of a recent move back to using the word passion. I guess we can go into that just a little bit here, um, briefly. Passion looks at the idea of of really reflecting on the whole of Holy Week in the, the week that leads up to it. So rather than just doing Palm Sunday and the account of the triumphal entry on Sunday, let's just go ahead and focus on the whole of Holy Week on that Sunday, and then we can zoom in a little bit more specifically on the other days. So you still get the palm, you still get the triumphal entry, but you get more than that. You get the whole of whole of the events. In part, the benefit of that, probably the pro to that, is that you are going to have people in your church that aren't going to attend on Maundy Thursday and Good Friday. So they they wouldn't get those passion readings of Christ's trials and his crucifixion. And so with the passion account style format, they do get that. Now, I said this is going to be a little different today because we've already had these texts across the show. Um, So we are in the Old Testament this weekend looking at Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 12, which, let's see, as I look at my chart here, we did that one on... Well... Back on the fifth Sunday after Pentecost, proper nine it was at that time, in year A. So that's going to be middle of 2020, June 30th, 2020. The Zechariah 9 text showed up in our our lectionary readings. And then the the epistle text is going to be Philippians chapter 2. It's verses 5 through 11. And that's going to have shown up on Passion Sunday last year in year a so year a and year b both give us philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11 as the text so that was april 1st of 2020 if you want to go back you can listen to that text fully unpacked i'm going to just do a brief summary of both of them showing you how they highlight and how they connect and point us to the the passion narrative of jesus the gospel text has a little bit more wiggle here Your pastor has three choices. He can choose to go with Mark chapter 14, verse 1, all the way through chapter 15, verse 47. Or he can knock out 14 and just go with Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 47. Or the third option is to go to John's gospel account, chapter 12, verses 20 to 43. For the sake of the podcast, having already done the other two readings, we're going to go ahead and tackle today just that longer reading of Mark 14 and 15. And we're going to do it really an overview level as two chapters, and there's a lot in those two chapters. And this will give us a chance to just summarize some things, and I can point some things out and make some connections for you. We will briefly here touch on Zechariah and Philippians again uh, before coming back to Mark. So with Zechariah 9, 9 through 12, 
The text is short enough with both of these. I'll go ahead and read these. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. So some highlights of that text. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. You know, to rejoice is to to remember our joy. And it's to celebrate the joy that we have. And joy is treasure, so we treasure the Lord. We treasure his gifts to us. We treasure Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And they're told to celebrate those things. Remember God's promises and celebrate those promises. Daughter of Zion is a reference to the people of God the children of his his holy nation of Israel who were living in Israel and Judah and Jerusalem is the capital city of the the full nation when they divide it's the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah Zion is another name for Jerusalem behold your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he the picture of a messiah a king who will come to save and again it's easy to see as you go through Old Testament texts, how in many cases the disciples' understanding of the Messiah as a savior like from earthly kingdoms, you can see how that makes some sense. And we see it here. I mean, righteous and having salvation is he. Well, what's, what's the difficulty that they're having that they think they need saving from? And we get a military illustration in the very next verse. Uh, as they're being, they're suffering, they're and the faithlessness, the exile that's happened. So we see these things. And then, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And this points us to why we read it on Passion Sunday or Palm Sunday, because as we talk about the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem, he does so on a donkey in fulfillment of this prophecy. This prophecy from Zechariah 9. Verse 10 again gives us the military language, battle bow being um, cut off. Interesting connection there to the the rainbow is God's battle bow. But anyway, no more war here. Instead, it's going to be peace. And that his rule, so the Messiah's rule, Jesus' rule, is going to be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Uh, The river there could possibly be a reference to the Jordan It could possibly be a reference to a larger river in a bordering nation like the Tigris or the Euphrates, if we're thinking about the place of exile, or for the Jews that would flee down to Egypt, the Nile. But in any of those pictures, you think of going from a river to the end of the earth, you're going to wrap yourself all the way back around to the other side of the river, and you're going to make the full circle of the globe. So God's rule, Christ's rule, his kingdom is going to cover the the entirety of creation. And we know that the forgiveness of sins, that his blood on the cross won for us, does exactly that. It covers the sins of all the world. Also then we've got the blood of the covenant, uh, that God is remembering them, he's setting them free. 
you can think of this really either covenant, the old covenant or the new covenant could be talked about in this, this idea. Because of the blood of the covenant with you, God has freed you. He's rescued you. He's redeemed you. The old covenant said, I will be your God. You will be my people. Now the new covenant, uh, again, speaks very similarly, but this time centered on the forgiveness of sins rather than our, on our obedience. So both of those can at least be discussed in that context. And then verse 12, today I declare that I will restore to you double, is a beautiful promise. Uh, as you think about, I don't know, maybe just for a moment, try to think of how many times you've sinned already today. Um, write them all down. The promise here is that God's restoration, God's forgiveness is double. So if you were to try to quantify your sin, whether it's the quantity of them or the value of them, because, you know, some of the sins you commit against your neighbor are worse than others, although not in God's eyes, but, you know, killing your neighbor is worse than lying to your neighbor in our understanding. So if you could somehow qualify them, or quantify them either way. Go ahead and multiply it by two, and that's how much forgiveness God has for you. Or you could put it a different way. You could say he forgives you, he wipes them all away, but he doesn't just forgive you, he then also grants you life on top of it. So you can look at that a couple of different ways, but it's a beautiful picture, a beautiful promise that we have from the Lord. He restores double for our sin. So the epistle reading then from Philippians chapter 2, have this mind among yourselves. So this is that encouragement that we would be like Christ. Um, that word Christian meaning a follower of Christ or a little Christian as some have called it. So we are to follow Christ. We're to act as Christ did. We're to live as he did. And so what's that look like? Well, he emptied himself. He humbled himself in all ways, becoming a servant taking on human form, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's why we read it today in this text in our, our passion accounts uh, as Jesus dying on the cross, very much so in the, the readings. God, though, exalted him. And so as, as Christ humbled himself and was willing to do what the Lord had for him to do, we are to humble ourselves and do what the Lord has for us to do, which is to love God, love our neighbor, to serve them, share the gospel with them. And in, in, in the end, God has exalted his Christ. He has exalted his Savior, his Son, Jesus. And he's made him Lord over heaven and earth. In the end, when Christ returns, God will exalt us. And he will lift us up. And we know that we are co-heirs with Christ, that we will reign with him over his creation forevermore. So again, the beauty of the, the connections there in the text. And so you can see both of those readings. Again, you can, you can track them down in the, the older episodes of the podcast um, if you want to, to listen in more fully. But we're going to jump into Mark chapter 14 and 15. And it's in the English Standard Version, it, it gets divided up into various sections, lots of subtitles. So we're just going to take it one subtitle, one section at a time. It starts us with just verses 1 and 2. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So the key notes here, the first with the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that is the Jewish high celebration of their year. 
as they their entire calendar re- revolves around that celebration. It is the freedom that God gave them, the deliverance that he won for them from Egypt, their time of slavery, as he sets them free and he gives them their own promised land. And there's an obvious connection for us to that as well, as the New Testament, the new covenant in Jesus' blood is ours. Uh, it's our deliverance, our redemption from sin and death, and we have a new promised land too that we look forward to in paradise. But as we back up here, so this is the, the middle of the first month of the year. The Passover marked on the 14th, um, with the celebration lasting for a week, the 15th through the 21st. And the Jews would flock to Jerusalem for this event. It was a pilgrimage. They would all come from all over the place. Even Jesus' family did this when he was a boy, right? You remember the, the boy Jesus, 12 years old, found in the temple? So, common practice. And the chief priests are aware that the crowds love Jesus. And so if they were to try and act on Jesus when everybody was there in Jerusalem during the feast, that would be a problem. That could cause an uproar. Now, it's going to end up coming about anyway because this is God's plan and not theirs. Um, they might think that they're the ones plotting to kill Jesus and that this is all their design. But in the end, ultimately, it's still in God's control. It's still his plan to offer up his son for our benefit. The next section, uh, verses two, uh, sorry, 3 through 9. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than three hundred denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could, but she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So Bethany is a village east of Jerusalem where they were spending some time. Uh, Simon the leper, somebody that was likely healed previously by Jesus, uh, also identified Luke records a similar anointing, but not the same one, and that one happens with a Simon, Simon the Pharisee. So, there are four Gospels, and each one records an anointing like this. It seems like Matthew, Mark, and John are the same event, and that Luke's is a separate event from that. So, from the other Gospel texts, we would learn that this is Mary, uh, the sister of of Martha and Lazarus that lived in Bethany, who does this for Jesus, and that she pours the oil on his head, she pours it on his feet, she wipes his feet with her hair, um, and that also we see that some indignantly scolded her, well, uh, there in verse 4, Matthew just credits that to being all the disciples, whereas John very specifically narrows in on Judas Iscariot, and so it's likely Matthew, we should read it Matthew's way there and consider that it was all of them, all of the disciples. The sum then that Mark says would, would eliminate others that might have been gathered together um, in the part of the crowd, whereas 
John is going to zoom in on Judas because of the role Judas has to play in the, the time to come. Jesus points again to his burial as being something that's imminent, his death being imminent for the disciples to see and to hear, and they continue to struggle to understand that. Verse 10 and 11, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them, and when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. That opportunity to betray him is going to come when they get Jesus in private. Again, they, they fear the crowd. So what Judas is doing here is he is selling the whereabouts of Jesus privately, a, a place where they can find him away from a gathering so they can get rid of him quickly, quietly, secretly. Um, what Judas is up to here, we don't really know. His motivation is never told to us in Scripture beyond the fact that he gets 30 pieces of silver. Is that his only motivation? That seems pretty weak, but it, it's a possibility, I suppose. There certainly could be more to what's going on with Judas than just that. Verses 12 through 21 uh, connect us to the Passover. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, he say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? Sorry, just is it I in Mark's gospel. Matthew has the Lord word there. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So we come to Maundy Thursday. Uh, it's important just to remember that in Jewish culture, the, the Old Testament culture too, the, the day really begins with the sundown. So at 6 p.m. when we think of the day kind of winding down, in the Hebrew culture and mindset, that was the start of a new day. So you think back to Genesis 1, to God creating, there was evening, there was morning the first day. In our mind, we flip it around. We say morning, evening, but they say evening, morning. So 6 p.m. to 6 p.m., that's a day. It's a helpful way to try and remember things, and it might play into how you understand some of the things even that happen in Holy Week. So they're looking to celebrate the Passover, and Jesus gives them very specific directions of who they will find and where they should go. They follow his directions, and it's exactly as he said. Uh, that that man has a large upper room already furnished and ready, and they get to eat the Passover together there. So just one of the miracles of God, I suppose. It's hard to hard to say and envision just how miraculous this moment might have been. Um, you know, God's foreknowledge, Jesus' divinity, his divine knowledge of all things is in play here. But to what extent has he... Has he prepared all this himself? 
or does he simply know about this opportunity? And we don't know. I don't have any fullness of an answer to you for that. They're reclining together at the table and Jesus announces that he is being betrayed. Remember, this is a group that thinks that they're going to war. And they think that this is a rebellion and Jesus is going to set up an earthly kingdom. And yet one of these twelve can't be trusted. And one of them is a betrayer. And it's somebody who's dipped his bread into the dish with Jesus. Now, how many dipping bowls they may have had, I don't know. It's possible all 12 of them dipped. Otherwise, maybe more likely is it's one of the ones sitting closest to him that they would have been able to share the same bowl, whereas the other, other disciples would have had different bowls sitting nearer to them. Verse 21, it's necessary, it has been written, that this will happen to the Son of Man. It has to happen for our salvation. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Woe is a, a word of condemnation and, and deep sorrow. And Jesus speaks that here of Judas. And then additionally, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. I should have looked up the Greek here. In, in Matthew's Gospel, it's ganao, which means to, to bear a child, but it can also be translated to beget. So it can go even further back than just the actual birthday. It can go back to the day of conception, in a sense, than saying it would be better for him if he had never existed at all than the outcome that's coming. So better that Judas had never even lived, period, than that he have lived and die. And that's not physical death, but the everlasting death of hell. This is that kind of a verse that gives us that, that understanding of the outcome for Judas, that we won't see him in paradise. Next, we get the institution. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So bread and wine, body and blood. We still as a church, we don't understand how. Many have tried to wrap their minds around the how of the Lord's Supper, and that's often when we get ourselves into theological trouble. We just take Jesus at his word. This is my body. Okay. It looks like bread. But he said it's his body. So we're going to talk about bread. We're going to talk about body. And we're going to leave that up to him. And we're going to be thankful for this gift. And the same with the blood. This is my blood. It looks like wine. But we're going to, he said it's his blood. So we're going to take him at his word. We've got wine. We've got blood. We talk about both. And we trust him. And this is a gift that he has given for us. And he does this in a moment of complete shock and chaos for the disciples. They've been hearing the, the pattern of the Passover feast is that the head of the family would tell the Exodus account to his family as they were eating dinner. And Jesus, as the head of this family, this community, this head of this this group of disciples, He's told it to them a couple years in a row now, at least two, maybe three. And so for them to hear him tell the story of the Exodus 
and change it and fix it on himself instead. That's a that's a moment of shock and intensity. That's not something that they're gonna lightly forget, but they're gonna remember, especially within the next few hours as he's arrested, betrayed, and and ultimately killed. This is gonna stand out as that that key moment for them. Blood of the covenant is is the closing of the old covenant. When the old covenant was broken, it required covenants are cut in blood. They're made in blood. They're not simple promises. They're they're not simple contracts. Um, you die if you break a covenant. And so God has made this covenant with man, but man was actually not involved in the walking through. So you, you sacrifice animals, blood is shed, and the two parties making the covenant pass through that blood together. Genesis 15, God puts Abram to sleep. Abram doesn't pass through the blood. God alone passes through the blood. So when man breaks the covenant, the covenant's broken. Bloodshed is required. God's blood's the only blood strong enough. It's the only blood good enough to care for and to, to pay that price. And so Jesus' blood on the cross is that, that, that blood that forgives, that atones, that reconciles. And more than that, it is also then the blood of the new covenant, it is the shedding, the cutting of blood required in order for there to be a new covenant which is going to be based on the forgiveness of sins that we have from our Lord. Jesus then gives them a note that this is imminent. Verse 25, he's not going to drink wine again until he does it with them in the kingdom of God. Wine is probably their most common drink at the time. They have wine, they have water. Water is not very clean. So he drank a lot of wine. So for Jesus to say he's not going to drink any more wine until basically paradise, they should have picked up on this. Whether they did or not, don't know, but they should have. They sang a hymn together. Uh, commentaries I've read suggest it's probably that range of Psalm 115 to Psalm 118. So feel free to read those and see how deeply they point to Christ's passion. They go out to the Mount of Olives, which is two miles east of Jerusalem. Uh, it's not the season for the harvesting of olives, so it's a quiet place. It's it's easy for them to, to kind of lay low there. Um, Gethsemane, more specifically, is coming up in the next paragraph, and that's going to be, uh, well, the word itself means olive press. So they harvest the olives, they bring them to Gethsemane to be pressed into oil that they can then take to the market. So that's where the disciples appear to have been staying throughout the week. So, Verse 26 through 31. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Peter has not lacked for boldness in the things that he speaks throughout the gospel. Um, and he's doing it here again. Jesus predicts that they will all abandon him. All 12 of them. And at this point, Judas has already gone. So I guess we could just say all 11 because Judas is already betrayed and abandoned and left and denied. But Jesus is going to quote 
again uh, from an Old Testament prophecy here. This is, uh, I should have looked this one up too. Let me turn my study Bible and get that for us here real quick. Um, so he, he talks about it very quite simply that, you know, strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. So when Jesus is arrested, when Jesus is betrayed, the people, his disciples, they'll flee instead of staying by him. As they see the what is done to Jesus, they won't want that done to them. And that's exactly what you're going to find about the disciples, too, after Jesus rises from the dead. He finds them in hiding because they were afraid of what might happen to them. This is from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, as I was looking that up for you. Uh, so another Zechariah prophecy, just like our Old Testament reading from chapter 9. He also makes a prediction again that he's going to rise. And we never see the disciples comment on that resurrection piece before the resurrection itself happens. Then he says he'll go before them to Galilee after the resurrection. Galilee is where they spent most of their time together before this. Um, Galilee being where many of them are from. And Judas is not. Judas Iscariot was from at least the south. It's hard to place any of the rest of them. Um, Iscariot being a reference to a location and being south of Jerusalem. But the rest of these men, probably, possibly from Galilee, we know Peter was living in Capernaum, that he had a house there. But again, Peter Bold says he will not deny Jesus, which interestingly enough, right there, is a denial of Jesus, because Jesus just said, you will deny me. And Peter says, no, I won't. That's denial right there already from Peter. He's not trusting in Jesus' words. He's rejecting the words of his Savior. And he's trying to live life his own way. That's idolatry. Jesus then points to the rooster and says before the rooster crows, Peter will deny him three times. Roosters crow before the sun comes up, if you don't know. Um, it tends to be probably around four in the morning or so if the sun's going to come up at six a couple hours before sunlight and here we're already after sunset so peter within just a few hours you're going to deny jesus three times and he continues to deny it and now emphatically even if i must die with you and again when that opportunity comes He's not willing to die with Jesus, but instead flees, just like the rest of them. However, all of these guys, minus John, will eventually die with Jesus. They will suffer. They will drink the cup that he drinks and be baptized with the cup with which he, with the baptism with which he is baptized. They will suffer and they will die for the sake of Jesus and his gospel message and proclamation. John, too, would have, but for the Lord's chosen purpose. The Lord safeguarded him in that execution attempt uh, by the Roman Empire, and he got exiled to Patmos instead, where he then has the opportunity still in his life to write all five of his books that we have in the New Testament, the Gospel according to John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. Hard to really pin down which one's written in which order. All right, verses 32 to 42. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. 
And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed, that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, and their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is being is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So here in Gethsemane, um, Jesus is going to pray. He leaves the, well, 11 minus 3. He leaves the eight disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. He takes Peter, James, and John a little further out, and he asks them that they would keep watch while he goes to pray. And he's going to pray for an hour before he returns to them. Uh, his soul is very sorrowful even to death. It's hard to imagine just how deep his sorrow is. He has just taken on, he knows that he is taking on in the next day's time, the sins of the entire world. That's a lot of sorrow. That's a lot of pain and suffering that he's going to bear on our behalf. And he knows this is coming. And so he goes to pray. And he does. He prays that the hour might pass from him, if possible. Jesus completely submits himself to the will of his Father. That doesn't mean he's looking forward to the torture that he endures. But he's willing to endure it for us. So, Father, if there's another way, but not my will, but your will be done. So there's a point you're taking out of this one. Simon Again, having been so bold to say he would not deny Jesus isn't even strong enough to stay awake for a simple hour and keep watch for Jesus. So it doesn't give a lot of confidence that Simon's going to keep his word and, and, and stay faithful, which we know he doesn't. The spirit is willing, so boisterous, bold, of course I can do this. But the flesh is weak, the temptation came. The disciples gave in. Peter, James, and John fall asleep instead of keeping watch. Verse 43 through 50. Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. So here we see in the text Judas is the betrayer. Uh, we knew that already from back in verse 10 and 11. And he brings with him, perhaps we would call this the temple card. Um, they are the ones who, who serve the chief priests and the scribes. And they have come to arrest Jesus. 
John uh, Judas sign is that he'll go straight up to the the, the one and he'll kiss him, um, the kiss of greeting, and he does that. Calls him Rabbi, which means teacher. And the guards do what they've been hired to do. Well, not hired by Judas. They they do what they have been ordered to do, what they are paid to do by the chief priests and the scribes. And they seize Jesus in this moment. Now, Peter fights back. Mark does not identify this as Peter, perhaps to not make it seem like Peter is, you know, back in verse 31, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. You could misunderstand this attempt to fight back as Peter doing exactly that. But even at that, it only shows Peter's unwillingness to understand the mission of Jesus to truly understand who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Just as it happens when he confesses, makes the great confession, you are the Christ, earlier in in the gospel, and then immediately afterward, Jesus has to say to him, get behind me, Satan, for you have in mind the things not of God, but of men. So Peter continues to, to live that way, and he continues to have in mind his own will, not God's will, in contrast to Jesus in his prayer. So, Jesus will tell him to put that sword away, but that's not something we see in the text here. Just like we also learn the high priest's name, uh, not the high priest's servant's name, Malchus. I always find that account to be one that would be incredible. Can you imagine being Malchus? Here you are. You've come to arrest this man. You don't really know him per se, although you've heard things about him. You've heard a lot of stuff about him, probably. You go to arrest him. One of his followers cuts off your ear with a sword. Jesus rebukes that guy, picks up your ear off the ground, puts it back against the side of your head, and heals you. Just a bit of a pause for you to consider that for a moment and what that might have been like. I can only imagine um, the pain first of, of the event. But then the immediate healing and the pain ceasing and, and your your body restored. I wonder if Malchus came to faith. Anyway, all of this is so that the scriptures will be fulfilled. The Old Testament promises of a Savior who would come. A righteous king with salvation for us. 51 and 52, a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is believed to be John Mark's own note about himself. So the gospel author is John Mark. He is called John, probably by the Jews, and Mark by the Gentiles, um, as that's more of a Roman name. Marcus, I think, means... I'm going to say it means something along the lines of warrior or somebody who fights, something like that. Anyway, um, just a note about himself. He calls himself young here, um, so perhaps a teenager, maybe younger than that. Um, It's hard to say from the text itself. Mark will end up traveling, so he's not one of the twelve, but he will end up traveling with Paul, and then eventually also his cousin, well, and his cousin Barnabas, but he'll travel with Barnabas later on as well before finally being reunited with Paul later. 
There was a falling out on the first missionary journey. We're not told in the book of Acts what that fight's about. Um, just that Mark at some point decided to leave and go home to Jerusalem. And that's all we see. And then when Paul and Barnabas are getting ready to set out on the second missionary journey, Barnabas wants to bring Mark and Paul wants nothing of Mark. But they do reconcile. We see that before Paul's life is over. Verse 53 through 65. They led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. Some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. So they bring Jesus to Caiaphas, the high priest. So you've got the high priest together with all the rest of the, the priestly uh, heads of, of families. You've got the elders that are gathered together, so the leaders of the Jewish people. And then the scribes, the ones who are responsible for the keeping of the scriptures. These are the very men who should have longed for Jesus. Longed for his salvation, not longed for his blood and for his death. Peter, having fled before, now is following Jesus, again at a distance. Uh, he comes to the courtyard. So this is Caiaphas's home, uh, the courtyard of his house. Peter is there, and he sits down with the guards to get warm by the fire as it got cool overnight. And we take a pause from that. Uh, we don't see Peter again until the next section. We see instead the, the false little mockery of a trial that the the Jews put together for Jesus as they seek any testimony that, that they can get to really they want to put him to death so they're seeking that, that testimony but Jewish Old Testament law requires that no one can be convicted on just the evidence of one witness but where two or three witness together that testimony is to be believed so Mark phrases this as though lots of people are making up false accusations against Jesus, but none of their accusations match. So lots of wicked stuff Jesus apparently did, which he didn't, but they can't pen any of it to him because nobody agreed. Nobody could come up with the same story. And so then you get, finally, a couple of them that give you the account of, of Jesus saying that he would tear down, if he tore down the temple, he could rebuild it in three days. We learn from John's gospel account that he's talking there about his own body, 
that he is the temple. Uh, the temple being the place where God dwells with his people and where he speaks to his people the words that he wants them to hear. Jesus is both of those things. God with us, Emmanuel, and also speaking God's word to us, as every word that he speaks is the word of the Lord. So we see that picture there. But even as they said those, uh, those statements about that event that really did happen, even the witnesses there could not agree with one another exactly on the details. And so even that wasn't going to be good enough. So Caiaphas presses. He asks Jesus if he is the Christ, and Jesus says, I am. More than the I am statement there, you also have the, the idea that he's going to be seated in the heavenly throne room, and he's going to come with the clouds of heaven. So there's a second coming reference uh, to the end of the world, Judgment Day. And the priest tears his garments. That's, you know, that's a grief thing uh, that they do in that culture. If, if they're grieving heavily, um, if they're, they're greatly upset by something, they tear their clothes. Um, you don't see that so much in our culture today. But he does it, Caiaphas does, and says, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. Everybody present just heard him say what he said, and to them that was a word of blasphemy, thus punishable by death, but they don't have the authority to kill him, so we're going to see them bring him to Pilate here in just a bit. They do strike him. They hit him. The guards received him with blows. Um, received is an interesting word there, um, but they, they physically harm Jesus. In that account. Now we finish the chapter, chapter 14, with verses 66 to 72. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. Seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. The servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it, and after a little while the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself, and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. So this paragraph we see Peter's faith falter. We see his his sinful desire for this earthly life overcome his faith. And he's going to realize that. He's going to be brought to repentance by the words of Jesus that are, he still remembers. That can be true for us too. As we remember the words of the Lord, as we remember his law, we might be in the middle of a sin. Uh, we might be in the middle of a doubt and our faith wavering. And then we hear God's law, it convicts us. The Holy Spirit using it to convict us and that we then repent and we receive that wondrous forgiveness Christ has won for us. Peter is now in need of that forgiveness as he three times denies his faith in Jesus, denies even knowing Jesus. And it's a little servant girl that he can't even stand up to, right? It's not like this is a, a soldier that said it. A servant girl. Chapter 15 as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? 
and see how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Just as Jesus before Caiaphas did not answer the questions the accusations made against him, so he doesn't before Pilate. And Pilate's amazed by that. He's a governor. He's used to people being charged with stuff, and they, they always defend themselves. Whether they're innocent or guilty, they always defend themselves, but not Jesus. Jesus sits there quietly, silently, which connects back to Isaiah chapter 53, the prophecy that like a lamb before its shearers is silent, uh, so would be the Christ. So it's the morning, um, which means, you know, the sun has come up early morning. We don't have a lot of time left already before Jesus ends up on the cross um, by nine in the morning. So a couple of hours is when this, these next few paragraphs are all going to take place as Jesus is first accused, then he's beaten, he's mocked, he is finally put on the cross, all in that span. So the, G, the G, Jewish leaders have come together. They have, as a council, made the decision to take Jesus to Pilate. Pilate asks him that question. This is the accusation, the chief one, that he, he claims to be king of the Jews. We're going to see that as you go through the book of Acts, that that's the charge against the apostles, that they're claiming Jesus is king instead of Caesar. So that charge is being brought before Pilate. That's a charge that the Roman emperor would be concerned about, uh, people revering another king. But Pilate, Pilate's not so concerned. I mean, Pilate doesn't see the same thing that the Jewish leaders see. So Pilate, again, he's got a softer appearance, although still kind of a weak appearance, too, as he seems to seems to be willing to appease the Jews in order to avoid trouble from them. We'll see that a little more. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priest st stirred up the crowd and to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So the feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Jewish celebration of the Passover, Pilate has a custom of releasing a prisoner, a Jewish prisoner. Again, it's a, an appeasement thing. It's a pardon uh, that makes the people happy. And the other prisoner that it's compared with here is Barabbas, who's guilty of murder. But murder in the insurrection, likely a rebellion then against the, the Romans themselves. So this murder that he he's charged with here may not have actually had the Jews upset with him. The Jews may have may have appreciated this as they are not keen on the Roman Empire themselves. But Pilate has has assumed that the crowd will respond differently, that the chief priests were mad because Jesus was trying to take their authority, that the crowds would not be the same, that they would want Jesus released, but instead the chief priests are able to stir them up and they get them to chant for Barabbas. And then, out of the blue, to cry out, crucify him in regards to Jesus. 
that's the Roman extreme of capital punishment, where they would hang you outside of the city uh, entranceway, not the city gate. So anybody coming or going would see you hanging there on the cross. It's an embarrassment for you. It's an embarrassment for your family. Uh, it's the worst, most humiliating form of execution the Romans had dreamed up to date. And that's what the crowds want done to Jesus. Not only that, but Pilate has him scourged. Uh, so Jesus beaten. Uh, something that you can see in the Passion of the Christ film from, I don't know, 20-something years ago. Has it really been that long? Anyway, um, it's an intense scene, without a doubt. They deliver him up to crucifixion. The soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. They clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. They began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! They were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. So here the soldiers that have scourged Jesus and are about to crucify him, they take a break to mock him, to make fun of him, to taunt him for thinking that he is a king when he's about to get executed. Uh, so these soldiers are right there with the, the Jewish leaders and now the Jewish crowds and, and bearing this guilt of, of what they've done to Jesus. Purple was a royal color. Uh, and it's, it's that way because it's so expensive. Purple dye is very hard to come by, very rare, so very costly. Only the richest of the the, the common, only the richest of the people could afford it. So typically royal, although very wealthy too, could have something like purple. So they put that on with a crown of thorns, um, which would have been quite painful as well. As even think about the robe, changing Jesus after he's been beaten probably hurt. So they strike him some more, they they mock him, and they then after they've finished, they take the purple fancy garment back, and they put his own clothes on him to take him to crucifixion. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. They brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. They crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. With him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself! Come down from the cross! So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So Simon, Alexander, Rufus, you know, his children being named there. Reason? Probably because they're eyewitnesses. So whoever's reading this gospel, when Mark writes it, you know, 15, 20 years later, they can go back and they can find those guys. They're still alive. Ask them about what they saw, about what happened, and they'd be able to tell the story of Jesus and the crucifixion and the resurrection. They offer him wine, but we remember he said he wouldn't drink wine until he's with the disciples again in paradise, so he doesn't drink it. They divide his garments, casting lots for them. It was prophesied in Psalm 22. 
the inscription that Herod, uh, sorry, that Pilate writes for him, the king of the Jews, and puts it over his head. Two robbers who, according to Mark, both revile him. The interesting note there is obviously we know from the other Gospels that one of those thieves repents and asks Jesus to save him. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It is possible that the time they spent on the cross that day is when his repentance comes. He starts out reviling. He repents later on uh, because of what he's seeing and hearing uh, from the, the crowd, from Jesus, what he knows. That's the, the most likely outcome um, from the two texts as we try to see those together. The crowds taunting him, as are the chief priests and the scribes. The fact of the matter is, if he comes down from the cross, he has denied God the Father, and he's not really God. He has to obey. He has to do this. He, he's come to save us, and everything is undone if he listens to them. So their faith would still be futile even if he did, did what they wanted. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Uh, that's a reference to noon until 3 p.m. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are the first line. That is the first line of Psalm 22, which, again, forecasts, prophesies about the, the Christ and what would happen in his suffering and in his death. Uh, it's the, the title of the hymn as it was their hymn book, the Psalms. So as Jesus says those words, a crowd gathered together, they would be reminded of that Psalm and the witness that that might bear to them might have brought some of them to belief. We don't know. Some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. Elijah is prophesied by God, I think it's Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, that he is going to come back before the last day dawns. And so that's probably the connection why they're talking about him here. Um, the temple curtain torn in two at the moment that Jesus dies is important. Now, it's a major event in scripture as that is the really the reconciliation of the world. The temple curtain separated God's presence, his holiness from sinners because our sin could not come into his presence. We would die. And in fact, that happened in the Old Testament. You see that in various accounts. But now the curtain has been torn in two because Christ has forgiven our sins we are we still look at ourselves as sinners we still do sin but that sin is forgiven in Christ already by what he's done for us so we can come into the presence of God and be spared so the centurion is there the roman centurion he's the only one in the gospel key words here that he says he's the son of god he's the only man in the gospel to say that the demons can confess it god himself can confess it mark says it in the introduction but he's the only person who says it in the course of the book. Why? Probably because this is written for the Roman people. It's an encouragement for them to believe. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So it's not just the twelve, but others that have gathered together as well. 
And here we get a few of them by name, Mary, Mary, and Salome. Um, we're going to continue to see them uh, as we move forward here in the text. When evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who also was himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. When he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Day of preparation uh, is referenced to Friday night and, and then Saturday morning as the time before the Sabbath as they're getting getting things ready. Well, the day of preparation is Thursday night to Friday morning. The Sabbath is Friday night to Saturday morning. So it is currently preparation time. When f the sun goes down in just a couple hours, it is the Sabbath. They can't work. So the work of taking Jesus off the cross has to happen first. Also, it was against the Jewish, Jews' customs uh, that somebody should be on the cross during the Sabbath. Uh, so that, that fits here too, and it's why the thieves' legs are broken, but that's not reported to us by Mark. Instead, what we see here is Pilate is surprised that Jesus died so quickly. Crucifixion uh, brings about death by asphyxiation. That is, you are starved of oxygen. As your body is up on the cross, you hang forward. It puts pressure on your lungs, and you can't breathe. You push off on your legs in order to give yourself that freedom of, the, uh, of weight, release on the lungs. You take a breath, and you end up right back there in that hard-to-breathe position after that. Jesus, being as beaten as he was, a lot of that strength is already gone, and so he dies a lot quicker than the thieves do. Their legs are broken so that they die uh, shortly after. But um, it, it could have taken days, and it sometimes did. So that's part of Pilate's surprise here. He gives Joseph of Arimathea, who is a Pharisee, gives him the body. Joseph's going to bury him in a tomb, his own tomb. And we learn that the two Marys see that location because that's important in chapter 16. We're going to see them head out to the tomb, seeking to anoint Christ in his burial, to prepare his body for a... Well, it would have been a foul at that point. At least that's what they thought. But he had risen from the dead. So there's our passion account, two chapters of Mark's gospel to plow our way through together uh, that you get to hear from this weekend. There are so many options, so many different ways your pastor might choose to preach this. Um, so I hope, the, hope this was helpful as you consider um, the Lord's word together in your household this week.